Hey, what's up, folks? Welcome back to the Green Torch Podcast, where we showcase and discuss real-life, on-the-ground stories of cross-border environmental cooperation in the Middle East and North Africa. I'm your host, Josiah Shaver. Today we have a really good interview, and it's actually the first half of a really good interview. So what happened was, I sat down with this amazing person, who you'll hear from very soon, and we talked for a very long time. It ended up, we were on Zoom, and it ended up being just about two hours long of amazing conversation. So we broke it up to make it a little more uh, digestible. There's gonna be a part A and a part B. So let me just give an intro, a quick bio to our interviewee. Dr. Somia Balsabramanya is a senior researcher in environment and development economics at the International Water Management Institute, or CGIAR. She uses economic methods to address environmental and development challenges in Asia and Africa. Her expertise in program evaluation and non-market valuation is based on 10 years of field research in developing countries. Her work has been used by international aid agencies and financial organizations to inform investments and programs and by governments in developing countries to design policy. So super good conversation. This is part A. Let's go ahead and dive into the interview. Well, hello, Sonia. How are you today? Hey, how are you? Good to see you. I'm doing well. How about yourself? Yeah, I'm doing pretty good. Um, honestly, uh, we talked this summer a little bit while I was kind of dreaming up what this podcast could be. And like I didn't say it at the time because I wasn't sure exactly how it was going to shake out. But yeah. to be honest, as soon as I talked to you, I was like, wow, I need to get her on the shows. <laughs> so I'm very, I'm very glad to <laughs> interview <not> you. you. <laughs> Um, can you tell us, uh, start with this, maybe, can you tell us like where you're from, uh, what your ethnicity is and where you are now? Okay. So I grew up in India. I grew up in New Delhi. Um, and, uh, I lived there for 24 years and I studied there. I got a bachelor's and a master's degree in economics. Um, uh, I was at the Delhi school of economics and then I kind of jumped ship, moved to the U.S. and got a Ph.D. in environmental economics, uh, environment and development economics, really, at Duke. And then I spent many years being a scientist. So I worked for the CGIR, which is this big network of scientists who do research for policy and research for development and uh, focusing um, in low and middle income countries. Uh, but the CGIR is funded uh, by OECD countries predominantly, but it's also funded by low and middle income countries because they host us. Um, and so I did a lot of uh, research to basically understand how can the uh, management of natural resources uh, contribute towards reducing poverty or at least prevent people from fall- falling further into poverty, which, is, which are two different things, but both very important from a policy perspective. And uh, so, so I worked in many parts of Asia, the Middle East, Northern Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, and a lot of work that I've done has contributed to policy and programming uh, in, in low and middle income countries, including uh, thinking about how to better manage investments so that they're more effective, how to fix things which are not working very well. Uh, so that's the kind of stuff that I've done. And now at the moment, I'm, I'm with the World Bank and I'm based on Washington, D.C. now. And I work Passion. for the environment practice of the bank. The bank's a complex place, lots of, lots of structure to it, but uh, I'm a senior economist with the bank at Poland. Yeah. Nice. Awesome. Yeah. So you're recording from New York? Uh, no, Washington, D.C. Yeah. Okay, D.C. Right on. Uh, and I am in Israel, Palestine, or Southern Israel at Let's Katurah, the campus yeah. of the Arab Institute. Um, I am actually, we, Studio has been interesting trying to figure this out, but I am actually in my room, which is actually a bombproof room. I think that's one of the codes here. Uh, one room in every in every building has to be like a like a bombproof shelter thing. So I have like a, a bomb door on my door. I have two doors. One is regular door. The outside is like metal, and this actually worked out pretty well for me because 
it's almost completely soundproof. I was about to say, that's great for recording. Unfortunately, I can't offer you the same thing out here. Uh, I'm surrounded by sort of windows, 210 degrees, and I'm bang on Florida Avenue, which means there's an ambulance or, 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 (laughs) or a fire truck going by every 15 minutes with sirens blazing. So sorry. So, no uh, <laughs> so if this turns out to be a crappy interview, it's on me. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. Um, can I ask you what the World Bank is? I think I think that's like a, a big term and most people probably don't know what the World Bank is and what it does. So I was wondering if you could kind of unpack that. Sure. I mean, and it's... Uh... It's. I can understand why. I don't think it's the easiest to quite understand what the bank does, especially from the outside. Uh, takes a lifetime to figure it, figure, figure it out, even on the inside, if you ask me. That's my personal opinion. Uh, but I just joined the bank, you know, eight or nine months ago. So I'm kind of fresh off the boat and I'm kind of figuring it out as well. But essentially, uh, the bank was put together after the Second World War, primarily to reconstruct Western Europe. So all of Western Europe, which was destroyed after the Second World War was the infrastructure for developing it was financed by what used to be called the IBRD at that time. And so Western Europe was put together, was built together under what was called the Marshall Plan. And once that process of financing infrastructure to to sort of put together and build up Western Europe again, kind of finished, there was an organization and it sort of changed and added to its mandate uh, to finance uh, development and poverty reduction programs in countries across Asia and Africa, because that's when colonialism was ending in these countries and most of these countries were emerging as independent countries themselves. So the World Bank is primarily that it's a bank. It's a bank that's made out of five different organizations. And I will say that the bank's Wikipedia page is, is, is a very good description of what, it, what the bank actually factually does. Um, it's, it's, it's dense and it's not easy to understand in part because it is a unique organization. There is no other organization in the world as the bank. And so it's primarily a bank. It, 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 it lends to countries. So it's sovereign lending. Very often at concessional rates of interest. Uh, to finance the development of either infrastructure programs, so that could be roads, schools, it could be agricultural programs like distributing better seeds. A lot of financing now is very much along the, you know, in the in the realms of natural resource management, climate change. How do we put money into countries, into, into low and middle income countries, in order to help them better adapt to climate change? But the bank does a number of things. It finances development projects across a whole number of sectors in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. So it's primarily a bank. That's what it does. But it does, but we, but, but the hope is that these policies and programs are financed, designed, developed uh, with keeping in mind evidence and our own learning in the you know sixty years that the bank has been there. Uh, you know what are we? Because you know things change, everything changes, and so what works and what doesn't work also keeps changing. And so, in a sense, in a nutshell, that's that's what the bank is about. Gotcha. Okay, cool. That helps a lot. Um, to give context of how this works, say I say I work for a developing country. How do I get access to those funds? How does the money you get to those countries? Yeah. So that's a fairly complex. Uh, uh, that's a fairly complex mechanism, and I don't think we can really get into the nitty gritties of how that works. But it's very transparent, and again. The bank's Wikipedia page does a fantastic job of answering this question. It, the bank is owned by, every, by all the countries in the world who are members of the bank. So they're all shareholders. So the bank is run by different countries. It's run by low, middle, and high-income countries. So, it isn't, it, so, that, so that's the reality of it. And, um, and so there is a mechanism through which... Uh, different countries access money uh, from the bank. It's a, for the most part, a preset structure. Uh, so there are rules and everybody knows what the rules of the game are. And, and, and it's, it's, it's quite clear who can access what from the bank and how. So 
so it's it's not like a private bank where you go and you know you go and put in an application and you get a loan. It, it's it, it doesn't quite work that way. So because we're owned by you know whatever the 170 plus odd countries that, that own that own the bank, including you know Israel is part of the bank. I mean everybody is part of the World Bank system. So yeah. Okay, cool. That that helps. Can you tell us a little bit more about your specific role in the World Bank? the subgroups that you're part of and and maybe you can get into your research with those as well. Sure. So the bank, like I said, a, you're right, it's a complex organization. The bank itself is made up of five organizations. Uh, the two of the largest are the IBRD and the IDA. And that's where most of the staff, so the staff are hired at the bank through the IBRD or the IDA. But this is publicly available information. There's nothing, there's nothing remotely you know, secretive about any of this stuff. It's all out there. And so most of the bank is operational, by which I mean that it's, 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 it's our job to, to uh, ensure that money in development is, is being put into programs that work, make sense, etc. There's a fairly complex structure within the bank itself. I'm not going to go into that. Uh, but in a sense, there are two broad roles at the bank, right? One is the production of global public goods, which is what is the understanding, our understanding of development processes themselves, what's working, what's not working, how do we get things to work? So a lot of that, those kinds of issues are looked at by folks within the bank and they're put out in the form of reports, journal articles, papers, very often things that you can go to the bank's website and download and read. Uh, a lot of that is often produced in coordination with governments of countries, uh, you know, because there are people who are funding that kind of thinking, and there are people we are working with in order to, you know, improve our own understanding of it. And then, of course, there's the other component of the bank, which is really about, uh, you know, uh, let's say there is some sort of lending that has to happen in a particular country. How is that lending program designed? How does it all come together? Uh, like I said, it's only sovereign lending. The bank only lends to other governments. So it's a negotiation process between, you know, a country that wants, uh, you know, funds in order to be able to do something. And then, you know, staff in countries and country governments get together to design those loan programs, which are then jointly implemented with, including with technical expertise from the bank. So that's, that's, that's a fairly simplified sort of, uh, version, uh, sto un un sto story on how the bank works. It's it's complex because we're you know, it, because it is complex. I mean, the job is complex, and so what I specifically do with the bank is I spend more of my time. I spend a lot of my time doing analytics, which is what of research research in the bank is often called analytics, and so uh, so I look at essentially uh, what can be done in order to. Uh, make the case for better investing in environment and natural resource management, uh, you know, including uh, financing for nature, thinking about, you know, what, what are good ways in order to be able to mobilize all this energy that's out there, the money that's out there. Uh, so I look into those kinds of things and, and you know, uh, which, which, which helps both OECD countries as well as low and middle income countries. Uh, I look at that. I work with teams in different countries in order to generate analytics that help implement policies and programs that are being supported by the bank in those countries. So how do we use evidence in order to improve the implementation of things that have been decided? Or how do we use evidence in order to be able to, you know, contribute to the design of better policies and programs which are then implemented on the ground by the bank in partnership with the countries that we're, work, that we're working in and living in and, and doing stuff in. So that, in a nutshell, is what I do. Nice. So if I'm understanding this right, you're, you're one of the players that does research to find out how the money can best be used in terms of sustainability, environment, and agriculture. And then you're giving a recommendation. You submit reports that contribute to recommendations of how the money is yeah. So very often, uh, you know, the reason why it's hard to make progress on the agenda of sustainability, poverty reduction is because even we, we sometimes don't know what we what we need to know in order to get, 
to be able to get get that moving. And so I contribute towards generating knowledge that then helps inform, better inform, you know, what needs to be done and how it needs to be done. Nice. So uh, that's in a nutshell what I do. Yeah. Right on. Okay. Cool. Let's uh, let's talk about Jordan, the country, because I know a lot of your research is based in Jordan. Do you want to kind of just explain the diff- some of the different projects you've done that have looked at things in Jordan and what the key findings were? Sure. So my work in Jordan actually is from, uh, like I said, I joined the bank at the start of this year. So my work in Jordan is, uh, you know, with my previous organization, which was the International Water Management Institute, and which is one of the 15 member, 15 organizations that's part of something called the CGIAR, which is this global network of research organizations which do research for development. So I started my career off as a scientist, and I was a scientist for a very long time until the start of this year. I'm still trying to keep my scientific hat on. We'll we'll see how long that lasts, uh, but we'll see. So, so my work in Jordan comes from that time. So this is with my previous organization, not the bank. And essentially, I mean, uh, Jordan's an interesting sort of, you know, country. It's one of the most water scarce countries in the world, as a lot of the Middle East is. Uh, water is at a premium. And uh, there is a lot of agriculture, very high value agriculture, especially in the highlands of Jordan which is dependent on groundwater. And groundwater is, of course, a rapidly rapidly depleting resource. Um, and so, uh, in a nutshell, the big question then becomes, how do, you, how do you save your groundwater resources when so many people are dependent on them for livelihoods, incomes, etc.? And there's a whole economy, right, of jobs that's, that's around this agricultural system. And so uh, this is, there's nothing new about this in a sense, because this is a, I think this is a problem that, that Jordan has been dealing with for the past 20 years, right? And so we went in to, to, to better try and and understand because it's because what 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 what's happened historically in Jordan is there's been this uh, push to rely you know on uh, efficient irrigation technologies right so try and get farmers in the highlands particularly to use drip irrigation systems because these are highly water efficient systems. But one of the paradoxes, of course, of drip irrigation is that as it becomes, you might, you might end up using less water to irrigate a, a piece of land, but your costs of irrigation come down drastically and your costs of energy to irrigate come down drastically. So typically more land comes under agricultural production as well. So though you might be using less water on a piece of land, you just put more pieces of land under the, under agriculture. So you use water more efficiently, but you also end up pulling out more water. And that's not unique to Jordan. This is, this is, this is a paradox of drip irrigation globally, wherever drip irrigation has been, including California, right? A lot of these highly efficient, high value agriculture in California, avocados, almonds, pistachios, all of them, they're all irrigated with drip irrigation. And as more and more drip irrigation has been used, more and more land has come under agriculture and cultivation. So you use water very efficiently, but you also end up using more water. And it's a highly profitable system because, again, as in Jordan, there's a whole economy around it in, in, in the United States as well, right? And so it's the same in Jordan. These highland systems provide jobs, employment to lots of people. And so, so what do you do to slow down, right? And so the... the to slow this problem. And, and as you put more and more land under agriculture, groundwater levels keep falling and falling. And that's pretty much what, what, what's happening in California. It's kind of what's happening in Jordan too. And so, <laughs> and so we came in to try and understand um, the, so, so this is a problem and you can't move away from it because you're sort of, you know, 
it, it's kind of you're locked into this, right? Uh, because you have these farms, they run on this technology, and that's that's kind of where where things are. So we came in to understand, given the fact that there is going to be drip irrigation and that's what that's all there is to it, how do you get farmers to just irrigate a bit uh, more judiciously than they do? And one of the things that we realized was because, and this is where the climate angle comes into place, because Jordan has droughts very frequently and these droughts over time are making it harder and harder for farmers to cultivate. Farmers tend to apply more water even using drip irrigation than they're supposed to be. So they end up irrigating uh, you know, these fruit crops. Most of them end up irrigating it practically every day, which you don't need to do. And the reason why they're doing that is because of risk of crop failure. And we also found that those who faced, who, who, who those who um, perceived climate change, droughts, risk of droughts to be greater were more likely to irrigate because it's the fear of use, losing your crop that makes you irrigate. And so one of the recommendations that, then we, that we made in Jordan was to say that, you know, rather than continuing to put more money into getting farmers to keep updating their drip irrigation systems, right, and changing membranes and having more efficient drip systems, what there probably is a greater need for is better publicly supported extension that actually helps farmers understand that you don't need to necessarily irrigate every day. And then because there is this fear of climate change, that also then becomes a strategy to think of longer term perspectives on what would happen to agriculture in Jordan, rather than... Uh, so it provides an opportunity for engagement to think about longer term resilience. And so investing in public R&D and public extension support to farmers to get them to irrigate less often because they don't need to actually irrigate every day. It's just the fear of losing the crop that gets them to irrigate every day. So rather than investing more in, oh, here's another loan to go and upgrade your drip system, you may be better off also, you know, investing. Uh, you can do that, but, you know, that's that's really not the biggest challenge. The bigger challenge is this, this fear of climate, climate change, this fear of crop loss, which makes people take up behaviors that are actually not very good for them. Uh, or even for the crop, because if you irrigate a fruit tree every day, your yields are actually going to be lower than yeah. what they would be irrigated maybe once or twice, twice uh, a week on that irrigation schedule. Because there are there is an agronomic irrigation schedule for each crop and following it is a good thing because that's what maximizes your yield, especially in the case of these farms in Jordan, which are very, these are not smallholder farms. These are high value farms run by rich people, owned by rich people. So these are not small production systems, right? So for these farms, following those official irrigation schedules is the right thing to do, but they don't yes. do it because I'm worried my crop will fail because, you know, everything is so dry. I'm perceiving a drought. I'm perceiving this change. And so I'll irrigate more than I need. So that's, so we went and sort of, uh, the evidence we generated made a very good case for, you know, it's not, it's not just technology. You need to focus on, on behaviors. You need to focus on extension. You need public support, public extension services to work with farmers uh, to correct some of these practices on the farm, not just think about the, what, how to get better technologies to them. Wow. Okay. So, so what I think I hear you saying is that lots of these uh, farming companies in Jordan, they're, they're bigger companies. There is a scientifically proven best way, like a best amount of water for these crops. But, but what they're actually doing is, is they're watering more than they need to, which actually lowers the yield. But it's like a psychology thing where they're doing it because they perceive a risk of drought, climate, and space for water. Yeah. yeah. Ultimately, of course, this is not necessarily going to solve the groundwater depletion problem because that's a that's a much bigger problem, right? You these are you know highly profitable farms. They're going to and, and this, like I said, they generate a lot of jobs, a lot of jobs for you know picking the fruit, packing, packing packaging the fruit, canning, processing it. So there's a whole economy 
uh, you know, I think, I think about 30% of employment, I think, I think in Jordan is supported by this, by this agricultural system. So it's not a small number. And so, you know, so just to be able to say, oh, because we need to support our ground, you know, some people would might say, oh, but you know, groundwater is, is rapidly depleting, which it is. Maybe we just need to, you know, just completely get rid of this agricultural system. That's not the answer, right? So because you you can't. The reality is if it the reality is that you can't do it. And so and so, what can you do then in order to, in a sense, slow the pro? You know, there's a problem. It's going to happen. It could happen in twenty years. Could we stretch it to fifty? That's that's the scenario in which we're working in 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 this particular case. That's that's my opinion as a scientist, at least. Yeah. Right. Wow. That's, uh, that really paints it in perspective. I mean, okay. So I want to ask you like how well this works and if this is not your area of expertise, you know, just say so, but like, it sounds really challenging to go to corporations, big farming agriculture companies and say, Hey, we know you're scared about losing your entire crop. You know, 30% of the country is employed with this, <laughs> this type of industry, but we want you to water your crops less. That sounds just like a hard sell. I don't know. Do they meet a lot of resistance when they kind of bring this message? I don't think there's resistance to it. <clears throat> I think I would argue and say that I think most farmers, including commercial farmers, are very well aware of the fact that groundwater levels are falling in part because they have to keep drilling deeper and deeper to hit water every couple of years. Right. So most farmers will tell you, yes, I'm, I'm very aware of the fact that, that this is a problem. The issue is that there's a whole livelihood system that's dependent on this. And so I think practical ways to support farmers uh, to, to do better when they can and where it makes sense for them to do it, including in the short term and the longer term, I think would, would be appreciated and I think is appreciated. So, so, you know, especially the idea that, you know, you don't want to irrigate every day because you actually get lower yields. This is not about your profits tomorrow. This is about your profits today. Right. And so, so this is a case where if you were to change some of your behaviors, you're better off today and you're potentially better off tomorrow too, because you're, you know, I mean, at least you're no worse off. Let's put it that way. So tomorrow you're better off today and no worse off tomorrow. And so, so this is a, this is a strategy that, 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 that's not a bad idea at all. And so, and I think the, the largest story that I think that's coming out of this is, uh, in the development literature, there is always this, um, this this debate between is it the technology or is it support around that technology? And the fact is you need both, mm. right? So the technology on its own is not going to solve the problem. It's the, it's the support and the expertise around it and how do you use it and how do you interact with it that, that has to all come together in order to be for able to, for people to be able to use technologies better. And I think that's, that's really the big lesson to take away from this. That if you're going to deploy technologies in the field, you also need to have, so that's the hard solution. You also need a series of soft solutions and soft approaches, which is really around human capital and behaviors and training and support that need to be deployed at the same time. Or else people will end up using these technologies in ways that they were not intended to be used in this way. You were not intended to use this to irrigate your crop every day, you know? So mm-hmm. that's the story that's coming out of this. Gotcha. Yeah. And I, I want to go back to the win-win scenario that I think you're describing in, in a lot of cases, if they are actually watering less, they're paying less money for the water, less infrastructure, less, yes. you know, and that's better for their crops and their costs yeah. and better for the environment and the long-term water storage of their groundwater. Is that, is that right? So in a sense, they are better off if they just, you know, don't irrigate every day, right? But I do want to emphasize that changing, even if let's assume every farmer in the highlands was was to irrigate according to the way they're supposed to irrigate, I don't think that's going to solve the groundwater problem for Jordan. 
Yeah. Um, a heck of a lot more than just, than just this one thing to solve. Right. right. Ultimately, at the end of the day, I think, uh, again, I, I compare it to the California story. I think they're very similar. I think it's, um, there's a direction that it's headed in. And the question is, how do you just prolong, prolong this, this, you know, uh, how do you just stretch this problem a little out in, into the future? I mean, yeah, right. I, I don't think it's, it's, I don't think, yeah, I, I don't think you can suddenly say, how do we revive water levels, groundwater levels in Jordan? That, that, that ship has sailed. Just mm. as in California too, that ship has sailed. So yeah. be clear about that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, that's a scary reality for, I mean, if we're looking a couple of generations down, do you like, uh, I don't know if this is something that, that you know solutions for, but like, what can they do? Uh, I mean, are they going to have to transition away from agriculture? Are they going to have to find more water sources? Yeah. It's a good question. And I, and I, I, I don't have an answer for you as much as I can paint out the, the complexity, I think, of, of the problem. So, so one of the challenges, I think, is we think about intergenerational equity, right? How, you know, by doing something today, how am I affecting the ability of people in the future to do what they need to do? But the one thing that I think is really overlooked is intragenerational inequity, right? So what that means is, let's assume any country decided to put into place a really hard measure on, we need to reduce the, let's say the, the you know, the, the uh, abstraction of groundwater by so many cubic, million cubic meters a year, right? And, and, and implemented it. The implementation of that is going to have different consequences for different people at this time. And so, uh, so in the Jordan case, right, not all farms are the same. Some farms are family run and own. They're large commercial farms, but they're family run and own. Others are, you know, run by managers, you know, to, you know, who sell this to larger corporations, right? So if you were to, uh, and I think this was tried. I think the government tried to put a cap at some point in time on the amount of water that you could pull out of any given well. And if you went above the cap, then you were fined, right? What the research there tells us is that that rule had very different consequences for what kind of farm you were. Farms that were the most profitable, they're so profitable that they'd rather violate the, you know, you'd rather say, I'm pulling out more and I'll pay the fine because it's profitable for you to do so, right? While other farms, you know, uh, kind of, many farms actually ended up saying, you know, okay, I'll probably cross this threshold. So why don't I just upgrade my technology on the farm and get more efficient? And so you can avoid the fine, right? Mm -hmm. And so the point is that any solution that's brought into place will have different consequences for different people. And while we start and while we keep thinking about equity between now and the future, the one thing that's missing and I feel missing personally in a lot of development dialogue and development policy and programming is what about equity right now? Because your ability to implement something is going to depend upon how acceptable it is to different people. And if it has dire consequences for somebody, it's very, very hard to implement those solutions because there will be pushback from those constituencies, right? There are political realities here. And so, to my mind, a lot of these problems of sustainability 
are also problems of inequity right now. Mm. And unless that becomes central to the way we think about things, we're going to struggle to implement solutions. I want to open another can of worms if, if I can. And I want to be really clear that like, uh, I can't ask you to, uh, speak on behalf of the world bank, but I am very curious, uh, from your perspective as a scientist who's in the area and as an expert, I know that Jordan gets some water from Israel, from the state of Israel, from their international water carrier, uh, and the word on the street that I've heard is that they don't think they're getting what they deserve from Israel in terms of how much water they get. Is Can you kind of unpack that from your perspective if you have any way that you want to comment on that, how it influences the water, how much water they have, and how that influences agriculture and all that? Yeah, no, I think it's a, it's a fascinating thing, right? I mean, if you look at Israel itself, I think um, Israel's done, it, 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 is, it is quite interesting to understand, to, to look at the Israeli experience and to really think about what can we draw from that, uh, you know, for, and how relevant is that experience in terms of transferring some of that thinking and solutions to other countries. And in a sense, it is probably, I think one of, it is probably the, to my mind, I think it's probably the only country in the world where the uh, amount of water that's used, particularly in agriculture, like fresh water, has gone down. In part because, you know, because of just the ability to, to, to recycle water, to treat uh, wastewater, to be able to move it around, desalination, you know, costs of desalination, which have come down, etc. And so one of the things that's happened is even though agricultural production has gone up, I think something like seven, sevenfold or something in the last, you know, conceivable past, the amount of freshwater resources used in agriculture has actually come down. And that's the power of technology, right? But Israel is also quite unique in a bunch of ways, right? From the time that the country, that there was inception of this country, all water is nationally owned in Israel. It's not a very big geographic area and size does matter <laughs> when it comes to managing natural resources, at least. And, um, and uh, from the get-go, you know, everything is metered. Everything, metering is, I think, almost ubiquitous, right? And um, everything is priced, right? Prices for fresh water are different than prices for wastewater. Prices are different by different kinds of use. Uh, and prices keep getting adjusted depending upon how the costs of getting that water to people change. So from the get-go, there's always been this approach that says you everything is metered, everything is monitored, you pay for it, and people are used to that. So trying to implement that in countries where that's not been the way things have sort of started is really very hard. And that's not just true of MENA, that's true... I come from India, it's exactly the same problem there, right? You just suddenly can't bring something in when you've had this long history of doing things in a very different way. So where you start and how you start does matter. That's what I mean. And also just the size of the country such that you can, uh, you know, um, uh, you generate enough wastewater that you can cost effectively treat it and put it back into agriculture. You don't have to move that water around too far because agricultural areas are not that far away from where people live, right? So, so the geography of a country really matters, how it is, where people settle, how people settle, densities of population. All of these make a difference to what is possible and what is not possible. And also, of course, a lot of Israel's agriculture is extremely high-value agriculture, right? So things like cereals are not even irrigated and anyway, Israel imports most of its cereals, right? It's, it's fruits and vegetables and high-value production, which is, which is irrigated. And it is extremely profitable. And so you have highly efficient and highly expensive technologies, which people deploy in their fields in order to achieve that kind of irrigation efficiency, right? Mm -hmm. So it's a set of fairly unique factors. And of course, one of the most important things is an is a, is a R&D system, right? A public R&D system. And uh, that was, that has sort of, come up with solutions 
partnering with the private sector, partnering with farmers, uh, having this very let's try let's try this and let's see how this works and let's learn from failure and go back and improve these technologies, etc. So. What I'm all this is to say is it's a fairly unique set of experiences, and actually the person that you should talk to about this uh, would be able to give you better information about this is 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 a is is a is a faculty member at Tel Aviv called Ram Fishman. So talk to Ram if you can, because he's he he will be able to talk about this way more credibly than I can. And the only yes. reason I think I'm able to speak about this is because we've just recently come up with a paper where we compare the experience of different countries, and Ram wrote the Israeli part. So there's a lot of stuff that I'm saying that's coming from him, not from me. So uh, all this is to say that uh, there is a set of unique, as, as Ram would say, there's a set of unique circumstances that explains why Israel is where it is. And you can't just take those circumstances and replicate them elsewhere, right? That's the lesson that we're learning from there. But the one thing I think that, that, that shows great promise, uh, at least from Israel, is that, is that technology and the fact that there's so much of thought about technology and how do you get better technologies in. So, for example, one of the things that, that would be great is, is it possible to develop these kinds of technologies that don't cost so much and which are more appropriate for use in other countries, right? And what can be done in order to have that kind of innovation. And there are enough smart people in Israel who can think about that. So I think, I think that would be a great thing. Um, one of the things that's challenging about water sharing sort of, uh, sort of uh, across boundaries is that populations in general are increasing everywhere, right? Israel's population is also increasing. And Jordan has, of course, had to deal with this influx of refugees that have come down from Syria. So these changes in populations are going to make it harder and harder to manage and share these resources. And this is where things like technology may be actually, uh, you know, may actually be very helpful, where you know, they might unlock things and help to augment supplies that normally would have been very expensive to do. And so that very well might be a solution, at least for that part of the world. Alone Tall is his name. He actually is in the Knesset. And this is something he's published a lot about and he shares a lot about. But I mean, broadly speaking, with the climate crisis, it's the same and a lot of other issues as well. One of the key factors is that we have way more people on the planet than we ever have. It's still going up. And yes. that just, I mean, that means we have to have food. We have to have that much more water, technology, energy, fuel, all of it. And so thanks for bringing that up. It's uh, definitely one of those challenges. Yeah. And again, I mean, like going back to the whole, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm completely borrowing from Ram out here. So shout out Ram. Uh, the the thing though is that again as my as as he would point out you might be able to solve your own you know manage your own resources better but it will have consequences for somebody else's resources now because you have to import those food grains right so somebody else's water resources elsewhere have to be used for that so so the the, the challenge here is that even though you might solve your own problem domestically it becomes somebody else's problem globally and it does go back to the fact that we have way more people now than we ever did. And by the way, this again goes back to that issue of equity right now, right? Because you may have whatever, what are we now? Seven billion plus, I guess, something like that. I think we're eight now. Eight. Okay, there you go. I stand corrected. I can't even keep up anymore. So, uh, um, but those eight billion people are not the same. Right. And so how do you talk about implementing solutions which will have grave realities for people who don't have a lot to begin with? Yeah, that's the problem that we're running into. Right. And so I do think that this issue of sustainability cannot be solved without thinking about equity right now, not intergenerational equity but equity at the moment, mm, yeah. right? Because think about countries that need to still people pull people out of poverty. This is not, this is not so much the case in the Middle East. There's, there is poverty there, but think about places like Sub-Saharan Africa, right? Where there's huge populations, again, rapidly growing populations and a lot of poverty. How do we get all those people out of poverty while what we really need to do is to essentially cut carbon emissions. That's what it is, right? That's what it boils down to. 
I don't have an answer. Yeah, me either. And I think what everybody will, I think what most people will say is we need, we need to cut carbon emissions down and we need to bring a lot of people out of poverty. And then the question becomes, who does what? Whose role is it? And so I would actually throw this back, you know, in, in, again, personally, I would throw this back in, in my personal capacity. I would say that it's really, you know, it is, it is going to be up to the leadership in, 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 in North America and in Western Europe to do what needs to be done there. Mm. Wow. And again, keeping in mind that those actions will have consequences for the not so well off in those countries. And so how do you support that transition? Right? Yeah. Let's assume you want to move away from carbon. It's going to mean rising costs of living. It's going to be rising energy prices. There's going to be a whole, there's going to be a transition that's going to be messy. Right. And there will be people within Germany and France, Germans, French, Italians, etc., who are going to struggle with that, with that transition. How do you, how do you support them while that transition happens? That's the thing that, that needs to be thought through. Yeah, I've heard it called the just transition before, like especially in the context of, say, fossil fuel workers, people in the oil industry. Uh, how, well, I mean, this context as well, countries. How do we do what we have to do, but also do it in a, in a way that is, you know, in some cases, a decades-long transition. <laughs> uh, yeah, but it's fair. It and, supported, and it has to be supported. And there may be some ways to do things. Like, like for example, if you think about big, big corporations that procure commodities directly from farmers in Asia and Africa, right? There's this big conversation and clearly an understanding there on um, how do these businesses become environmentally uh, responsible? I'm not going to even use the word sustainable. I'm just going to use the word responsible, right? How do they just do a better job of it? And one of the things that people are thinking about is things like regenerative agriculture, right? So how do you, intensification is, 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 has environmental consequences. It's, it's, it generates a lot of carbon. What do you do in order to offset some of these some of, you know, so you might cultivate a crop using intensive methods of cultivation. And then what do you do next season? How do you manage your land better in order to offset some of these environmental impacts, right? And the thing is, there may be easy, not easy, but easier solutions out here. So, for, so, for, so say, for example, for corporations to procure commodities directly from farmers, they are willing to spend the money to help farmers adopt these practices. But the challenge at a smallholder farming level is that it's very laborious and time-consuming for a guy who owns one hectare of land that's divided into five pieces that are not even contiguous in order to put that effort in because there's just not enough labor in the household. So how can a corporation that's procuring commodities from these 200,000 farmers all in one big state in some country in Africa, how can they then go about essentially saying, we're, procur we're, procur we're procuring commodities from you guys. We are going to take on the responsibility of coordinating and implementing a whole set of lactates across this entire landscape that will benefit you, make our uh, business more agriculturally responsible, and then generally create uh, you know, uh, efforts for others. But that's, that's creative thinking, right? The tendency normally is, I'm a corporation, I produce... I, I procure commodities like potatoes, wheat, whatever it is from all these farmers. I have a contract with them, right? Because I say, produce this for me and I'll buy this from you at a particular price or whatever it is. And into that contract, I'll slip in a line that says, but please also manage your, you know, your, 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 your farm in these practices and we'll pay you the costs of it, like the costs of inputs. It's not the costs of inputs, which is the sticking point. My hypothesis is it's the label. Somebody has to go and do this, and it's backbreaking work. Uh, it's drudgery. Nobody likes drudgery. Yeah. Right? And so, how do you basically remove the drudgery from it? And the solution may be don't put it in the contract and tell the farmer, do it on your own land, which is all over the place. If you're procuring commodities from so many farmers in this area as a corporation, put together a practice and a bunch of people 
who will go and implement these practices in coordination with farmers across this entire landscape because that way you reduce drudgery. Mm, I like that. Yeah. You have to start thinking. And, and that's the thing. There's going to be a whole bunch of solutions that are going to need to be implemented, which will require different approaches and fairly creative thinking. Yes. So, so it's, it's, yeah, I mean, there are no easy answers here. But I do think we have to start thinking about what are the barriers that are preventing these things from happening and how do we start tackling those barriers? Because the barriers are not often the things that we think they are. Hmm. Uh, I want to I go back to Israel supplying water to Jordan, if we can. Yeah. Do you have a sense of, like, is that enough? And, and I honestly don't remember the route of the pipeline. I want to say maybe it comes from the Sea of Galilee or the Canarians that goes maybe towards Amman, you know, you must know, but my question is, uh, is that enough water to do, does that water go to like city freshwater drinking supply or does that also go to agriculture? I don't know this, so don't quote me on this, but to the best of my understanding, I think the water supply from Israel to Jordan is mostly domestic, isn't it? It's drinking and domestic water, isn't it? That would make sense. Uh, Again, I don't know because it's not something we've looked into. But if I had to make a bet, I I think it's probably the drinking water and domestic water. Okay, folks. So that was part one, part A of this really cool conversation. I hope you do tune into the next episode, part B. In that conversation, we continue on to discuss a lot more interesting stuff, including, but not limited to, Tunisia, Ethiopia, a little bit of Egypt and even China and how those countries and their peoples relate to cross-border environmental cooperation and what can be done to improve situations. We also discuss how we can learn from failure and other stuff. So super cool. I want to invite each of you to join the conversation on social media. I mean, throw some questions up there. Start a discussion, right? That would be a great way for you to connect with me and other listeners as well. Also, I would love it if you could leave a review on Apple or Spotify or wherever you find to leave a review. That would be fantastic and it helps other people find the show as well. If you would consider supporting this show financially to help continue uh, this work to be possible to help sponsor future episodes and interviews, that would be fantastic. We have a Patreon website for that where you can donate a certain small amount of money per month to support the work. And if you do sign up to support us on Patreon, you actually get access to some exclusive content and some unique opportunities that other people who aren't supporting the show don't get. So check that out. I'm going to put a link to the Patreon website down below in the description so you can find that. Check it out. So yeah, that's uh, that's all for today. I'm your host, Josiah Shaver. Thank you so much for tuning in, and we'll catch you next time. And grace and peace to you and yours.